Well, as we continue our worship this morning, join me in John chapter 13. John chapter 13, and you can certainly see from the sermon bulletin, the title, A Traitor Among Us. You're not thinking this is a Christmas message. But remember, you shall call his name Jesus. Why? He'll save his people from their sins. This is a Christmas message. That Christ has come indeed to save us from the sin that we see uh, take place even here in John chapter 13. We're picking up the story in verse 18, John 13, 18, where the beautiful scene of Jesus stooping down to wash his apostles' feet takes a dramatic turn. And if you don't know what will happen in this story, this is an unexpected turn. Because as verse 18 opens, the love that Jesus has just shown his disciples now turns to hate that one of his disciples has for Jesus. From the humility of Christ, we now transition to the height of pride as Judas turns on the God of the universe and allows himself to be indwelt by Satan. The transition is from the light of grace to now the darkness of evil. In fact, darkness is the imagery John wants us to have in mind, which is why he ends this passage in verse 30. Notice the summary here, those ominous words, verse 30, and it was night. That is far more than John letting us know that the sun is set. This is John describing the spiritual atmosphere now that has filled the room. The darkness of hypocrisy and deception and betrayal has now set darkness that will only deepen over the next 12 or so hours of Jesus's life when the prince of darkness will have his way with the light of God when the father of sin will do his worst to the son of righteousness. And it all starts here in verse 18 in the upper room as Jesus confronts Judas, his betrayer. Let's read the text. Start in verse 18. We will read all the way through verse 30. Jesus says, I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen But it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. From now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, he receives whomever I send receives me and he receives me receives him who sent me. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. There was reclining on Jesus's bosom, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. So Simon Peter gestured to him and said to him, tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. He, leaning back thus on Jesus' bosom, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus then answered, that is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel 
and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took it and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. After the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore, Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. Now, no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. For some were supposing because Judas had the money box that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things we need for the feast or else that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately and it was night. Ever since the fall of man, sin has permeated our world. Sins from the big to the small, from holocausts on massive scales to sinful words spoken in private conversations. But never, never throughout all human history has there been a sin so heinous or so monstrous as the sin Judas will commit against Jesus on this night, betraying God's son into the hands of Satan and then death. This is why only Judas carries the title son of perdition, son of eternal damnation. This is why Jesus will say, woe to that man, pronouncing a divine curse. Woe to that man. Cursed be the one by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been good, better for that man if he had not been born. John Piper has put it this way. The most spectacular sin that has ever been committed in the history of the world is the brutal murder of Jesus Christ the morally perfect, infinitely worthy, divine son of God and the most despicable act in the process of this murder was the betrayal by one of his closest friends, Judas Iscariot. Judas is the greatest example of Hebrews 10 of one who tramples underfoot the son of God. And what does the writer of Hebrews say about that man? How much severer punishments do you think he will deserve? The severest of punishments comes to the most heinous of sinners. And Judas, the son of perdition, he tops that list. Judas was a traitor of the worst kind, a traitor against God incarnate, who feigned a love for Jesus for over three years, So tricky is Judas. That verse 22 notes here of John 13, he even fools the apostles in the process. They have no idea who Jesus is talking about. Says they're at a loss. This is why every time Judas is mentioned in John's gospel, it is always with a sense of shock coupled with horror. Think back to John chapter six, the first time Judas's name enters the story. Jesus answered them, one of you is a devil. That's shocking news. Verse 71, 
John adds, now he meant Judas for he, and then this phrase, one of the 12. There's the shock. One of the 12, his closest, was going to betray him. There's the horror. John 12, four, Judas Iscariot, one of the 12. Again, the shock in John's words here. He spent three years with Jesus. He preached the gospel of Jesus. He performed miracles in Jesus' name. He looked the part, but what was happening? He was intending to do the unthinkable, to betray him. There's the horror. Look back at verse two of John 13. We saw this a few weeks ago, shock and horror. Verse two, during supper, the devil the epitome of evil, having already put into the heart the core of Judas Iscariot. It's the shock now. Satan's tempted Judas. Judas has fallen for Satan's lies. And thus Judas has decided to betray him, the horror. And it's no wonder why verse 30 ends, and it was night, it's dark. Sin fills now this man. He loved the darkness rather than the light. So there's a contrast. Verses one through 17 was driven by the end of verse one, Jesus's love for his own. And verses 18 through 30 is driven by Judas's sin against Jesus. Judas the traitor now takes center stage in the supper room. So here's how I want to unpack the passage this week and next week. I want to draw out certain principles of sin and evil that we see here. Again, Judas is the epitome of evil. He's the greatest example of sin. You can call this a theology of sin, looking at these principles that have been true ever since the fall of man. Ever since sin entered this world, principles we need to learn if we're seeking to live a life of holiness and flee from sin. And there's nine principles we can draw out here. We'll look at the first four. This morning, we'll work our way through verse 20. Let's begin with principle number one. Principle number one. Sin will always promise what it cannot deliver. Principle number one, sin will always promise what it cannot deliver. That's the contrast between verses 17 and 18. Verse 17, Jesus says, if you know these things, speaking of his command to love one another, Jesus being the example of love, if you have the love of Christ abiding in you and overflowing from you, you love one another If you know these things and do them, you are blessed. You're blessed by God, rewarded by God if you do them. If you love one another, God will bless you. That's the promise. And we looked at those specific blessings Jesus had in mind last week. Let's take the 30,000 foot view though here. Understand what Jesus is doing. He's simply drawing off of a general Old Testament principle that's repeated throughout not only the Old Testament, but again in the New. 
The principle is this, if you walk in obedience to God's word, you will be blessed by God. That's the principle. Where there's obedience, there's blessing. Think of Psalm 1. How blessed, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. He chooses holiness and obedience. How blessed is he who does not stand in the path of sinners nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but rather his delight, his love is in the law of the Lord. You obey the Lord, you walk according to his word, you will be blessed by God. of Psalm 84. No good thing, no good thing does he withhold from those who what? Walk uprightly, who live in obedience to their God. Where there's obedience, there's blessing. That's the principle. And that's what Jesus is repeating in verse 17. You will be blessed if you do them. No good thing will the Lord withhold from you. Here's the transition now in verse 18. I do not speak of all of you. Jesus is drawing the contrast between the faithful 11 and the faithless one. A contrast between those who will receive God's divine blessing and the one, Judas, who will receive divine cursing from God. This is the inverse now of the promise of verse 17. Where there is no obedience, there is no blessing. Even worse, where there is no obedience, there is the opposite of blessing. And for the believer, where there's no obedience, there will be the disciplining hand of God. Read Psalm 32. The heavy hand of God will be placed on you But for the unbeliever, as we see here with Judas, the unbeliever, that will entail eternal torment in hell. And so as we begin to unpack a theology of sin from the very start, understand sin's deception. Sin will always lie to you, always. Sin will always promise you something. Sin will promise you good, promise you happiness, promise you fulfillment, satisfaction. This is what makes temptation so strong. Sin holds out those promises only and always to fail in delivering on those promises. But we only realize that when it's too late. This is James chapter one. Each one is tempted when he is carried away. And the word picture here is of a fish being drawn to bait on a hook. That's the picture. Carried away, enticed. And the fish thinks the juicy worm is what he needs. He doesn't see the hook that's hidden inside. What's the bait that James has in mind? It's our own lusts our own desires, our selfish wants, what we think will satisfy us, what we think we need right now in the moment. And so believing sin's deception, we swallow the hook. Verse 15 of James 1, 
When lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. What we thought would bring us happiness is what actually brings us agony. What we thought would bring blessing is the very thing that brings hurt and pain and sorrow. So why James warns, do not be deceived by sin's lies. Do not be deceived, my brethren. Don't fall for it. Don't believe the deception. In fact, James 1.17, he then follows it up by saying every good thing. Sin says it will give you something good, but understand every good thing only comes down from the Father of lights. I'll bring this principle back to the upper room. Judas rejected Jesus and he will betray him because he believed sin's lie. He believed sin's lie. In particular, he believed the deceitfulness of riches. The deceitfulness of riches. That's what we saw back in chapter 12, just one chapter previous, chapter 12. It was a final straw. Turn there for a moment. Final straw. This took place on the previous Saturday. Mary pours out an expensive bottle of perfume, anoints Jesus for burial. It was too much for Judas to take. So verse four, but Judas, Iscariot, and, and again that phrase, one of his disciples. It's the shock here. One of his disciples would what would betray him, was intending to betray him. What does he say? He's disgusted. Why was his perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? Why the waste? It was just a cover though, verse six. What's the heart of Judas? He said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. He wanted the money. In fact, look at chapter 13. That's what we are told here. That Jesus, uh, that Judas rather, verse 29, Judas had the money box. Judas had followed Jesus for what he thought he could get out of Jesus. followed Jesus for the earthly glory, thought Jesus would give him once he ascended the throne. He loved Jesus for his earthly kingdom, his earthly wealth, earthly fame. And for three years, Judas held out hope that one day, one day, very soon, all of his lusts would be fulfilled. But once... Back in chapter 12, once he realized Jesus was going to the grave anointed for burial, once he realized Jesus was going to the grave and not ascending the throne, once he realized that his lusts were not going to be fulfilled, he turned on Jesus. He believed sin's lie. And he decided to get whatever he could for this man this man who had failed him. And so he went out, most likely on Wednesday of this week, just a day before he went out, and he made a deal with the devil. He would give the religious leaders Jesus. 
but he would make sure he would give Jesus to them for money, the love of money, the deceitfulness of wealth. He sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, the price of a slave. And in so doing, unbeknownst to him, in so doing, Judas exchanged his eternal soul for the passing pleasure of this world. But he also exchanged his eternal soul for the torment of hell. Judas is the most graphic example of this first principle. Sin will always promise what it cannot deliver. It'll always promise you fulfillment and good, but it will always and only bring you pain. So daily, we must remind ourselves to not believe sin's deception. Blessing only comes from God, never sin, only from the Father of lights do good things come. And God will only bless those who live in obedience to him. That's principle number one. Principle number two. Principle number two, sin is used by God always for his glory and our good. Sin is used by God always for his glory and our good. Though Judas takes center stage here, Jesus is still in control of everything. Verse 18. I know the ones I have chosen, Jesus says. I know the ones I have chosen. Chosen not in the sense of election from before the foundation of the world. That's not the point. This is Jesus referring back to his selection of these 12 men to be a part of his inner circle, to be his disciples close to him. I know each and every one of you. That's the point here. Refer back to John chapter two, that Jesus himself knew what was in man. I know your faith. I know your commitment to me. I've known it ever since the day I chose you to be my apostles. I know the ones I have chosen. I know your heart. I see inside of you. And thus, with this one statement, Jesus indicates that he knows full well what Judas's intentions have been from the very beginning. Why did Jesus bring Judas into his band of men? Finish the verse here. It, speaking of Jesus's selection of Judas, it was for a purpose, so that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. It's a quote from Psalm 41. Ahithophel betraying David. Psalm 41, verse nine. Another friend who became a traitor, a confidant of the king who joined Absalom, David's son, in rebellion against David. Jesus says what happened to the first David is now going to happen on this night to the second David, the greater David, the Messiah David. He too would betray, be betrayed by a close friend, a confidant. But notice how Jesus says it. This is why Jesus chose Judas. It was not because he was fooled by Judas's hypocrisy. 
Jesus chose Judas because of Judas's hypocrisy. That the scripture may be fulfilled. He brings Judas next to him close by his side because of Judas's darkened heart, because he would betray him. It's a monstrous sin. The most heinous of all evil. But this was evil that God would use to fulfill his redemptive plan for mankind and bring himself glory. In fact, drop down to verse 31. Once Jesus dismisses the traitor to do his worst, what does Jesus say? Verse 31, now, now that Judas is gone, everything's been set in motion. Now the son is what? He's glorified. Now the son is glorified and God is glorified in him. This is glory that will only come through treachery. This is Genesis 50, 20 in living color. As for you, and we're gonna put Judas's name here, apply it to the scene. As for you, Judas, you meant evil against God's son. You meant evil. You want to hurt Jesus. You want to kill Jesus. But God meant it. God meant the evil God ordained the evil. He sovereignly allowed the evil to take place. Why? For good. The good of redemption, the good of his glory. The sin predicted here is reprehensible, it's perverse. Betrayed by someone you had just shared a meal with was the height of hypocrisy in that culture. Eating together was a sign of commitment to one another, a pledge of loyalty, but not for Judas on this night. There was no loyalty here. The sharing of bread was merely a ruse. And note that phrase, verse 18, lifted up his heel against me, it's a cultural way of saying he's taken cruel advantage of me. Let's put it in today's words. He's walked all over me. He's treated me like a doormat. Speaks of an act of open disdain. And and it's amazing, see the contrast. The very foot Jesus just washed will be the foot that steps all over him. Hebrews 10 imagery will trample all over the Son of God. And this now starts a theme that runs throughout the remainder of this gospel. The theme is Old Testament fulfillment. You don't see this before this point in John's gospel. But from here on out, you see it. But the key is each time We are told the Old Testament is fulfilled. Each time, it's always in regard to some heinous act of sin. Each time. John 15. Speaking of the world's hatred of Christ, Jesus says, they have done this. They have hated me. They have persecuted me to fulfill the word that is written in their law. Psalm 35. They hated me without a cause their sin will fulfill God's prophecy, God's plan. 
John 17, Jesus prays, I guarded them and not one of them perished except the son of perdition, Judas. Why? Why did Christ not prevent Judas's betrayal? Why? He could have. Just don't choose the guy. No, he doesn't so that the scripture would be fulfilled. So that the father's ordained purpose would come to pass. John 19, the Roman guards say to one another, let us cast lots for it, for Christ's garments to decide whose it shall be, the evil of stripping Jesus naked and treating him like a gambling prize. Why would this happen? This was to fulfill the scripture. They divided my outer garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. Each prophecy depicting great evil against Jesus, yet each evil act falling under the prophetic, redemptive design of God. So back to the principle then. Sin is used, sin is ordained by God always, always for his glory and our good. Always. Without Judas's love of money, there would have been no broker deal with the Sanhedrin. Without Judas's hypocrisy, there would have been no arrest in the garden. Without the darkness of Judas's heart, there would have been no rugged cross. And thus, without Jesus having brought this traitor into his inner circle, there would have been no atonement, no redemption, no new covenant sacrifice, no forgiveness, no reconciliation with God, no glory, no good. Christ knew exactly what he was doing when he chose Judas. Let's connect, though, this choice of Judas the betrayer. Let's connect this back to verse one. Remember the end of verse one, Jesus loved his own to the end, to the max, to the full. Here's another example of Christ's love. He loved us enough to secure his own death by choosing his betrayer to be his disciple. That's how much he loves us. This is the hope we have as believers. Not even Judas, the greatest of sinners, or Satan who will indwell Judas, the prince of sin. None can frustrate God's sovereign will. In fact, to the contrary of all of this, it will actually be through Judas's sinful rebellion and Satan's evil indwelling, it will be through that sin that the glory of our redemption will be accomplished. God uses sin always for his glory and our good. Which leads to this third principle. It's the application of it. Principle number three, the existence of sin should strengthen our faith, not weaken it. The existence of sin should strengthen our faith, not weaken it. 
Notice verse 19. Verse 19, from now on, I am telling you, rather than stopping my betrayal, again, which Jesus could have done, instead of stopping it, I'm going to predict it before it comes to pass. Here's the question, why? Why? Another so that, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am. The translators added he it's just I am, the divine name of God, so that you may believe that I am. Jesus knows how fragile his apostles' faith is at this moment. He knows that when they see him arrested and crucified, it will rock them. So much so that Peter will deny Jesus three times. The rest of the apostles will flee the garden in fear. In fact, John 20 tells us that the apostles after Jesus' death actually lock themselves in a room. Why? For fear of the Jews. Fear that the anger against Jesus will spill over to them. They lock themselves in a room for protection. These men will fear when Jesus is taken from them. They will flee when he is bound by the Roman soldiers. But notice what does not happen. What does not happen? Their faith does not fail utterly and completely. And part of the reason their faith in Christ remained was because of this prophecy. Jesus' ability to accurately predict his betrayer, a man who had fooled all of them. His ability to accurately predict his betrayer was faith-sustaining evidence. Faith-sustaining evidence that he was who he had claimed to be. He was God's son. He did share the nature of deity. And that... Those words, I am, what is Jesus doing? He's referring his apostles back to Exodus 3. When Moses asks Yahweh, what is your name? Tell me your name. And God says, I am who I am. That's my name. It's the divine name of God. Jesus is claiming that name. I am claiming to be transcendent Yahweh in human flesh. This is not the first time Jesus has called himself I am. John 8, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Unless you believe I am Yahweh in human flesh, you will die in your sins. There's no forgiveness for you. John 8, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Here, verse 19 so that you may believe that I am. It's all for a purpose, a purpose. He wants the faith of these men to be strengthened, secured. Now, what is Jesus doing here? Well, he is again referring back to the Old Testament. He's applying a text 
that is true of Yahweh God applying it to himself. It's Isaiah 44, where Yahweh asks, who is like me? Who's like me? Let him proclaim and declare it. If you think you're like God, take the stand. But offer the right proof. Speak up and show it. Prove it. Here's the proof. Declare the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. There's the proof of deity. Tell the future with perfection. Show, show omniscience. So why Yahweh says, is there any God besides me? I know of no one. No one can do this. I declare the end from the beginning. You don't. Only God knows the future. Again, this is why Jesus predicts Judas's betrayal here so that the faith of his apostles would not fail when he is taken from them. This prediction is going to confirm that he is, even though betrayed, it's gonna rock him, but he is Yahweh in human flesh. He is the I am, God's son. He shares the same nature as God. He's letting them know he's no victim of sin. No, he's the master over sin. Again, bring it back to the principle. Instead of the existence of sin weakening our faith, and calling into question God's love for us or his sovereignty over all things, which is so easy to do, isn't it? We see evil out there. We experience sin personally. But I thought God loved me. I thought he was sovereign over this. Instead of the existence of sin weakening our faith, let, it, let the existence of sin bolster our faith. Remembering what we see here that Christ not only knows the details of Judas's sin, but by extension, he knows the details of every sin that will ever take place. But connect this with the second principle. If that sin has been sovereignly allowed to happen, then take heart, because it will display his glory and it will be for our good. One commentator put it this way. The encouragement is clear. If Jesus in his purpose used the dark forces of chaos convulsing within the cauldron, which was Jerusalem during that Passover feast time, he can still master and harness the darkness which will daily threaten our personal lives. He is still the Lord of the night who can make darkness the vehicle of his praise. It's actually an act of love. Connect Jesus' words here back to verse one and his love for us. Though the pressure of his death is building, and drop down to verse 21, the pressure of his death is building. We'll see this next week, but Jesus actually becomes troubled, stirred, agitated in his spirits like never before. The pressure is building like never before, but because of, because of his love for us, 
In this moment, Jesus is more concerned, notice it, more concerned for his apostles' faith than his own coming hurt. That's love, isn't it? He's concerned that their faith will not utterly fail. To now a fourth principle of sin that we see here. Principle number four. And here's the call for us. Sin can only be remedied by the gospel of Jesus. Sin can only be remedied by the gospel of Jesus. So we're gonna celebrate just a few moments together. Again, Jesus knows what's in store for his apostles after not only he dies, but after he leaves. Resurrects, ascends. He knows what's in store for them. The darkness of this night is only gonna deepen. It's gonna spiral. And so what, what is the answer for them? What is the remedy for sin and evil that's going to permeate the world? Here's the answer, the proclamation of Christ and his gospel. That's the answer. And that answer does not change. It's always the remedy. It's always the answer. The proclamation of Christ and his gospel. This is why he adds this truly, truly statement in verse 20. You might think, well, it's kind of out of place. It's not when you understand this is the call for us. Truly, truly, I say to you, now speaking to those faithful 11, here's your marching orders. Here's your call. I'm leaving you. And in the meantime, understand, he receives whomever I send. That's the apostles. He receives whomever I send, receives me. The word send there, pempo, carries with it the idea of being sent as a representative of a sender. You represent someone behind you, greater than you, having authority over you. The primary mission for these faithful 11, once Jesus departs, is to represent him. Broaden this out to us. Our primary mission, our primary mission is to live a life primarily to represent Christ. We complicate things, don't we? That's our primary mission, to speak on behalf of Christ, to explain the gospel of Christ, to call people to come in saving faith to Christ, to turn from sin for Christ. And Jesus says here that we are to do this so fully and so completely, verse 20, that he who receives whomever I've sent receives me. Represent Christ and his gospel so clearly that to receive us, to believe us, to accept us is to receive and believe and accept Christ. That's our mission. That's our calling. which Jesus then adds, verse 20. He receives me through your testimony, that's implied. He receives me through your testimony, through your representation, your mission, receives him, the Father who sent me. It's an amazing promise. The most heinous sin is coming. And Jesus says here, whoever the sinner might be, and no matter how heinous the sin will be, 
when one accepts our testimony of Christ, here's the promise, they will be reconciled to the Father. That's the remedy. They'll be forgiven. Evil will be atoned for. Reconciliation will be experienced. The end of verse 20, they will receive the Father. The answer for us living in a world permeated by sin is not to fear and hide. Speak of Christ. Let's put it in other words here. Though darkness is dawning, Jesus says, though I will soon be betrayed and bound and killed, you must not let the darkness of sin quiet your testimony. You must not let the evil of my betrayal squelch your witness because the only remedy for sin is my cross. And the only way the sinner will hear about me and my salvation, the only way the sinner will hear about it is through you. That's the call here. That's the mission to these 12, faithful 11. It's through you. I'm sending you to represent me and my gospel. That's our call. He sends us so that we represent Christ. We don't hide in fear. We don't stay quiet, but we speak. Romans 10, how will they hear and believe if, if they don't hear the gospel? If someone's not sent, if we don't speak. How are we doing with that calling? Sin surrounds us daily, doesn't it? Sin permeates the world. How are we doing with that calling? Are we representing Christ so fully and so completely that to receive us is to receive Jesus? The only answer, the only remedy for sin in our world is Christ and his cross. That's what we're gonna celebrate in just a few moments. Father, Oh, we thank you that you indeed are sovereign over all things, and that includes all evil, all sin. We need not fear. We need not question your design, your wisdom, who can plumb your mind. Certainly we can't. Your ways are so much deeper than our ways. Your thoughts are so much higher. Your plans are so much better. And by your design, you have placed us here now so that we would be sent by you to proclaim the message of your son. As we remember the cross and the resurrection this morning by taking these elements, may it give us a greater fervor for our calling, grow our love for our Savior, let it overflow in our love for one another. Let us live that life indeed so that this world will know 
that we are Christ's disciples. Pray this in his name, amen.